welcome to the Freedom in Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist organizing and visions in Maine. I'm Catherine Bestemann, and I'm the host of the podcast. And today I am delighted to be able to welcome two guests, Mariana Angelo, who is a co-founder of Black Portland Organizers Working to End Racism, known as Black Power. Mariana is going to be talking with Michael Cabete, who is the Policy Council of the ACLU of Maine. Welcome, Michael and Mariana. So eager to hear your conversation. Over to you, Michael. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. And uh, I will quickly correct you. Uh, my title at the ACLU is Policy Council. The Policy Director who leads the Policy Department's named Megan Sway. And she's right now in Augusta. Um, thank you very much for uh, organizing this podcast, Catherine. And uh, uh, thanks, Josh, for sound engineering. Mariana, it's an enormous pleasure to uh, interview you. I've talked to you before, and uh, I anticipate an hour not being enough, but we'll do what we can. I will uh, start by asking you to uh, tell me where you grew up and uh, where you're from. Um, yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Mariana Angelo. And as Catherine said, I am um, one of the co-founders of Black Power. Um, and I'm really excited to be on here. Um, I'm happy that uh, you guys have noticed our work and want us to come and speak about it. Um, but I am a Mainer, so I was born and raised um, in Portland. Uh, so this this is my home. I am actually the first person in my direct family to be born in the U.S. Uh, so I do kind of have um, the dual experience of being raised around um, immigrants and having the immigrant experience, but then also growing up in America and um, understanding what my identity is and what that looks like and what Blackness looks like in America. So I've had the experience of both. Um, which are both very interesting, and I'm happy to get into that. You are a Mainer. You were born in Portland, uh, which is uh, almost the, the closest thing, I suppose, you could come in Portland to being royalty here. Uh, so I feel extra privileged to be able to introduce uh, uh, and interview you. Uh, I um, want to explore a little bit of your upbringing, the lots of perspectives that you embody, which often are talked about like they're totally different perspectives. There's, there's the immigrant perspective, there's the uh, African perspective, there's the black American perspective, um, then there's the Mainers perspective. It seems like these are inextricable uh, in your experience. Uh, what's your reflection on that? Yeah. Um, so my experience with that is that they're all so intricate, unique, and so intertwined at the same time. Um, the experience of being in an immigrant household and then also trying to figure out my identity. And if you, um, anybody who's listening to this, who has the experience of being born in an immigrant household and probably being one of the, well, the new generation of African children that are born in the U.S., um, you know that your identity is actually tied to being an American than it is tied to being African, um, which I think is a little bit different for other people. But from my experience, um, I grew up very much with the identity that my family gave me, which is you are an American child, right? So you're an American child. So your duty here is to be an American child and to really get into the political system here and make a mark for yourself 
and fight for what you want and fight for what liberation looks like for you. Um, and I also come from a long line of family members um, who were very instrumental in being activists and organizers and being on the ground um, and being part of the revolution that actually split Sudan from South Sudan. So I've, I had that upbringing um, and then coming to America, it's a completely different experience, obviously for my family and also for myself um, to understand what that means, but then also being proud of the fact that I do get to kind of walk into these different identities and these different communities. And I, I 100% still feel like myself. So although like I'm 100% a Mainer, so I do like doing all the Mainer stuff. You know, we love some lobster. We love canoeing. We love everything that's outdoorsy. Um, and, I, and I love that part. And I love um, the part of me that is born here that is an American and that um, is Black. And I love that identity. And I love the way um, I can maneuver all the spaces and what that looks like for me. I want to get to know more of what went into the making of this extraordinary activist in person, uh, Mariana Angelo. One thing you mentioned that really caught my attention is that there are activists and liberation fighters in your own family. Not everyone can say that. How did that affect your upbringing? How was that present in your upbringing? Do you mind going a little bit more into that? Yeah, so my dad was um, very instrumental um, in part of the revolution of the separation be between Sudan and South Sudan. He was actually um, one of the many men who actually created the South Sudanese constitution in Maine. Um, and so a lot of the times when my father wasn't around, it was because his main goal was to find liberation and whatever that looked like. Um, so growing up, I had that instinctive need to fix, to learn and to grow and to become something different and become something more. And I think seeing the way that weighed such a heavy burden on him for him to feel like I have to liberate my own people and I feel like I have to be the voice. I think it gave something to me that I don't think I would have gotten if I wasn't born in the family that I was. It gave me a battery in my back to be who I'm supposed to be and be who I am right now. Um, I always joke around with people that I used to be like an extreme introvert and people never believe me. Um, but I was an extreme introvert. And I think coming from a household with strong women who were very opinionated and had an opinion about everything and coming from a father who really molded us to have an opinion and he molded us to have a voice to say and to say things when it needed to be said and to push the boundaries, um, I think created, I guess, like the activist that I am today, even though I still consider myself as like a baby activist and people don't accept that. And they're just like, you're a full-fledged organizer at this point, but I still view myself as an individual that still has a lot to learn. So let me press you on that distinction. It seems like you see a difference between activist and organizer. What is the difference? For me, um, I think anybody can necessary, can honestly be an activist, right? I think anybody, because how a lot of people in the community see it is, 
you standing up and you calling out oppression, you calling out white supremacy, you calling out the prison industrial system, you standing up to your schools, your principals, pushing the norm, I think is an activist, right? Like I think that's for my personal definition, that's what I see it as. Now, the difference between being an organizer, um, an organizer is an individual that it has a keen perspective and a very unique trait in learning how to mobilize the community. Not necessarily, and not all activists have the ability to mobilize and create sustainable communities. Um, and that's how I see the difference. I would like to view myself as more of an organizer because of the work that I've done and the relationship that I have with people in this community. Um, but being an organizer is so unique because we aren't legislators. Like we don't, we don't work for the state. We are, we're grassroots. We create things that don't exist, right? We are first line responders when it comes to the blunt reality of being black in America and what that looks like. And we are the first responders. We are um, the individuals that not, that not only see an issue, but we find alternatives in order to create something that is sustainable and that works for everybody. Um, so I guess that's how I would see what an organizer versus an activist, because I think an activist is very important because some activists, it just takes one person to really spark a conversation, but it takes an organizer to sustain that conversation and actually create change. That's very interesting. And that's a very thorough answer. And I uh, really appreciate it. I've never thought about the difference with quite the same uh, level of uh, analysis. So I appreciate that. Let me ask you if there are any organizers dead or alive in the United States or elsewhere who are inspiring to you, who you look up to. Oh, that's a really, um, I feel like obviously Asada Shakur, she has my favorite um, chant of all time, which is, you know, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. And I'll let the listeners look that up. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that is one of my favorites of all times and her dedication. And I think Black women are so unique in the movement. Um, their voices are so unique and their drive and their need to accomplish a goal for all black people is something that I strive to do, um, putting their bodies on the line. Um, when a woman's body is usually looked at as a thing to control and you see women like Asada Shakur and Fannie Lou Hamer who really break the mold from that and they control their own bodies and then they put their bodies on the front line um, to be harmed and taking control of that narrative um, mm -hmm. that we are not meant to stay in the back and that our voices are the movement. Um, mm. And so as far as I think, I guess like 21st century, I guess activist is Tamika Mallory. I think I'm Tamika Mallory in my head. We're both like five oh. one. We both have the same energy. I feel like we both talk the same. Like I just want to meet her because I feel like we're the same person. Um, when she speaks, everything goes still. And that's what I always capture to do, which is I always try to be the individual that doesn't say a lot, but captures the moment and captures the feeling and captures the pain and the trauma and being able to speak for people who look like me, who are unable to, and really create change. And I think she's done an amazing job 
with the platform that she's had. Um, and then as far as just like local folks, I think everybody at Black Power inspires me every day. I think local activists in Portland inspire me every day. I mean, the youth here are incredible and they really are the voice of the revolution. So I think you, I, I mean, I don't wanna say biceps, like it's really just like all women, um, but yeah, I think really women really is, inspire me. Okay, so let me turn to that topic because yeah. you brought it up. I was going to bring it up at some point, which is the intersection of gender and race and the predominance of femmes and uh, women in Black power. Um, I've noticed that Black power is led and entirely or almost entirely constituted by femmes and women. Why is that? You know, that's so interesting because I think when, when we started, I don't think we meant to do that at all, right? I don't think we meant to do that at all, but there was a kinship mm. and there was a level of love. And I think the biggest thing is like, I think there was like a level of, a, of an accountability that I think the women and the femmes in the group had to each other that I don't think I've had in a lot of spaces with men. Um, mm. And I think... A lot of men who are organizers or activists um, or just advocates, because that is also completely different, um, tend to use their body. They tend to use their misogyny. They tend to use their voices to overpower the voices of the marginalized. And a lot of the marginalized people are women, femmes, trans women. And so I think we naturally we naturally just shifted to each other. And I think a lot of it was just a level of like an accountability and a level of trust that I think mm. a lot of um, women and femmes and trans women have in these spaces that I think is, it's so special, right? And I think a level is like, we can authentically be ourselves mm. without the feeling of making ourselves small for mm -hmm. the voice of man. That's very interesting and inspiring and beautiful. Thank you for sharing it in exactly that way. I know that the last uh, you know, 12 months of organizing and protest and demonstration were not your first radio by, rodeo by any stretch of the term. I know that you have a longer history of organizing. Uh, have you found this to be true throughout your life or is it something that the last year brought up? Um I would say I think I've always felt like this because I, um, the first people to really take me under their wing and realize, oh, wow, like this little girl actually has something to say. She's really loud, but there's some, there's some men there <laughs> or women. Like they were the first ones to really harness my voice and really fine tune it and help me find out what I want to say what and what magnitude that I want to do it and giving me the tools to become who I am right now. Um, yes, there were very prominent men in my life who really pushed me and catapulted me forward. Um, but from my personal experience, um, from the time I, I don't think I ever decided I wanted to be an organizer. I don't think I've ever decided that this is something that I wanted to do. I always say that I think it honestly chose me and the more I spoke and the more I put myself in positions where my voice could be heard, I think I gravitated towards the people who really cultivated my voice and really created a safe space for me to be myself. And that was women. Are you comfortable saying who? I'm desperate to know who these women are 
And I suppose we're talking, so we should celebrate them. And they partly made into, went into the making of Mariana and uh, that's been a benefit to all of us. So yeah. who were these women? Um, one woman was uh, Marina Blanchard. Um, she doesn't live here anymore. Um, she actually used to work for the ACLU, um, but uh, she was amazing. Um, she was probably mm. one of the first mm. people to tell me, um, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do some really big stuff in the future. Don't know what it is, but there's something about you. There's something about your voice that is incredible. That was the first time I've ever really heard that, especially mm. coming from another Black woman was everything for me. Um, Sama. Mm which is an amazing person in the community. Samaz, the individual that holds me accountable, is like, Mariana, you have no follow through. You're always saying stuff, <laughs> you not you have no follow through. And I needed that. Um, I needed somebody to be like, yeah, you're, you're great, but what are you actually doing? That's the person that really taught me, like what is sustainable? You need to create mm. things that are sustainable. Um, Nikki Sakira, um, mm. which is an amazing water protector, um, activist, organizer. Um, who has taught me so much as far as paying homage um, to the native folks that are here mm. and always asking for elders permission, right? And mm. always moving with grace and always listening to the voices that were here before you. Mm. Um, so those are three people in my life that were really, really instrumental um, in creating me. So this is, extremely touching. I mean, I feel chills just thinking about this because I, I know of all of these women. I yeah. know of Marina Blanchard. I know of Sama Abdurraqib. I know of Nikki Sakera. To know that they played a role in uh, your development as an organizer is a really beautiful and wonderful thing. I think that often we hear the names of activists when um, there's some kind of crisis. Uh, either they get arrested or there's a protest that's based in perception of injustice. But here you've invoked the names of these three uh, wonderful people uh, as part of your own beautiful story. So, so thank you. Um, they probably don't even know that. They're probably going to listen to this and be like, oh my gosh, Mariana's so extra. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they'll be grateful. Let me ask you about how Black Power formed. Yeah. Um, so we had... So this was right after George Floyd um, was murdered. And I think it, we were trying to find a way to place our rage, right? Everybody that I was having a conversation with was really at their breaking point hmm. uh, and was really trying to find where do we place this rage and where, do, where can we create something, right? Like who do we need to talk to and who do we need when is the community going to change? Like, when are we going to really mobilize and really create something? And so I was having a lot of these conversations with people that I knew. Um, and I think a lot of other organizers that I just knew in Portland, we were all having these like very emotional conversations of just being honestly tired, right? And just being yeah. at our wits end. And some organizers really came together and was like, hey, I really wanna do, I wanna do a protest. Right. Mm -hmm. Like and usually um, doing a protest is, is a little bit difficult in Maine because one, there's not a lot of black people. 
So that's 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 just like one, right? There's not a lot of black people. So you're like, so who can I organize with? There ain't a lot of us, but we only want to organize with black people. So like, where do we go? This time it was it was like an overwhelming amount of black people that were like, I want to get on board. I've I might have never done this before, but I want to get on board. I want to learn and I want to be a around other black folks so I can cry and give my pain that is not in white spaces, right? That's not cultivated by whiteness, that is not secured in whiteness. I really wanna be in a space where I can grieve with my pain. And I was talking to a lot of youth that I was in high school when Trayvon Martin died, right? I was like a freshman. Mm -hmm. Not That was not my first introduction with police brutality. My first introduction with, with that was David Ocott. Um, who was also South Sudanese, um, who was murdered, actually right down the street from me. So that was my first introduction of, this is what police do to black people, right? Even at like that very young age. And then mm -hmm. having Trayvon Martin and then having Mike Brown and Mike Brown, we were the same age and would have started college at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, for me, there was a lot of emotion around it. And for a lot of younger folks, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery are their first introduction to police brutality. Mm -hmm. So their feelings were extreme rage, right? And I feel yeah. like my job as someone who's older and someone who's been an organizer for a while is to give them a space for that rage. And that's what we kind of decided to do a protest. I think everybody kind of reached out to another black person that they knew, another organizer that they knew and was like, hey, let's just put something together. And before you knew it, we were on a call with like 30 people. Wow. And yeah, and it was, it was hectic. And it was very like, what's going on? Who's on this call? But it was amazing because some of the people I met on that call, I still talk to to this day that I probably would wow. have never known if we didn't, or I would have never known them or I would have never had a relationship with them. And that's how we planned a protest that had like 3000 people. And we did it within like a week and nobody slept. And we were up until 3 a.m. every day, writing statements, creating pages, creating graphics, um, figuring out a security team. And this is to say, Portland never, we never actually had the idea. And this is the idea of like defund the police because we created our own police thing, right? Like we didn't actually have police. We, we literally found our own policing for ourselves, but I don't even want to call it that. We found our own security, right? We kind of find our own marshals and we trained within each other um, in order to protect each other. And we didn't need police. And we did that on our own. We had a whole medic team. We had a whole security team, um, which was amazing. And I, I honestly, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I wish we could do it again. But I don't think my body could even like walk eight hours anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I don't think I could do can that. Just, I don't uh, out. Can you say why you said eight hours? Yes. Um, so we did eight hours um, for the amount of minutes um, that that police, I don't even want to say his name, but that murderer um, was kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Um, so that's why we did that. And I didn't realize how, I mean, we did that, but I don't think we understood how powerful it was going to be until we were actually there at the protest and seeing people cry 
and seeing people get really emotional and seeing people hug each other and love on each other. And mm. there was some point in time where there were people who couldn't even walk anymore. And there were other people carrying each other just to get to each destination. Like I'd wow. never seen that before. I'd never seen that amount of like rallying yeah. um, with people in the community. And that gave me all like the hope and all the energy and all like everything that I've needed. And ev it felt like everything that I've ever done in Portland, it all made sense. So Mariana, you grew up in Portland. Yes. Um, was that normal for Portland? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> Portland is a little hipster town. Like they don't do stuff like that. Um, I mean, I will say this, Mainers are some of like the sweetest people I've ever met, but that has not absolved them from racism. It does not absolve them from participating in white supremacy. And it doesn't absolve them from participating, you know what I mean, in the structures that we have now that are oppressive. Mm -hmm. And because Maine is so small that I think we forget of how even in Maine, the same systems of oppression can be like perpetuated here. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I think it was really hard for, I think a lot of Mainers to really like reflect and be like, so how do we, how have we been participating in this? Um, mm -hmm. Because any other time this would have never happened at all. Um, Mainers would have never showed up. They would have never rallied behind community. Mm -hmm. um, they would have never showed up in the numbers that they did. Let me take you back a little to the first round of Black Lives Matter protests in Portland, which I think you were involved in. Am I right? Um, <laughs> um, I was helping the kids. <laughs> I mean, the only one that I was actually like really involved in as far as like organizing was the one for Black Power, but all the other ones, I was really like auxiliary support. So I was really just there to make sure that the youth were like really supported and I see. Yes. I see. Uh, I'm curious how the world changed between when there were protests after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin in 2013 and 14, and then last year. Because you were here for both, and I, no, I wasn't. Yes. Um, there, the difference between George Floyd and I think Trayvon was with Trayvon's case, although for black people, it's blatant, you know, a child was murdered, a child was stalked and murdered, you know, but there was so much controversy around it, right? Which was, what did he do? Why did he have the hoodie on? Why did he go in the store? Why did he walk down that alley? You know what I mean? And because there was only a recording and there wasn't really a video, there was so much controversy around it. And I think that was like, for, for people in Maine, I think for a lot of black kids, it was the awakening of your blackness, right? It was the awakening of, it was like in the aha moment that everything clicked. We really are black in America. And I can say that, wholeheartedly that I think I've always felt different. I've always felt off. I've always knew what my blackness meant because of the family that I came from. But I think Trayvon yeah. dying was for a lot of black kids my age was, oh, wow, this is really what the system looks like and this is what it does. 
Now, fast forward yeah. to George Floyd, a lot of us are one way older. Um, Twitter, Snapchat, it's Instagram are funneling information a lot quicker. We are hearing stories on a day-to-day basis. There are more organizers. There are more activists. There are more people speaking up. Um, and George Floyd's death was not a dispute. Right? It couldn't be disputed. Yeah. And it was on camera. Right? So I think that that was like... Yeah. The, the huge differences, which I think that a lot of folks were finding their blackness and finding where they were. Whereas now in George Floyd, we know who we are. I see. So let me take you back then to the protest um, that you described the eight hour event. You said that there was a private, that, that there was a security team as part of the group of organizers. Uh, can you go a little into that? What does that look like? And yeah. what's that team's relationship to the police? Um, so what we decided, because we didn't really know how many people were going to show up, um, and we don't believe policing in the form that it is currently, um, and for the safety, and this is really for like the safety of the Black folks, the people of color, BIPOC folks that were going to be showing up, that we could we could protect them to the best of our ability. And part of that is removing the concept of police, right? Is removing the concept of like, do we really need police and do we need them right now, right? Because if essentially, if we are protesting the system that actually killed George Floyd, it'd be contradictory to have police there and to have police presence. And so we had a lot of conversations um, with myself and Arlo, which is another organizer who is amazing. Um, they work for Southern Maine Worker Center and he's done amazing work. Um, and we had so many conversations back and forth as far as, so like, what do we do? What does it look like? And how do we keep our people safe? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we both reflected on the protest that happened in 2016, which I got arrested at. And we kind of went back and looked at what we could have done better and what we could have done differently. And one of them was we had an idea of what a security team would look like or what marshals would look like. And we had a pretty good blueprint. It just didn't follow through. And we're like, okay, so we can, we can recreate that. Um, Mm. And so we started creating documents, writing out and, you know, really doing research. I mean, we went all the way back to like the Black Panther Party and the formations that they made and how they vetted individuals. And we did really extensive research um, because safety is definitely a priority for us. Um, We wanted people to have a place to have rage without it being policed, literally. Um, And to know that we are here in full support. Um, And so that's when we started reaching out um, to a plethora of individuals that that we knew, like people that we trusted, people that other folks trusted, um, people that I've just seen out in the community doing really, really good work. Um, Mm -hmm. And we just reached out to so like maybe like 80 people. Um, And like a good number of them showed up. So it might've been like 40, 50 individuals who ended up deciding to show up and we did a very like intensive training. We talked about accountability. We talked about what that looked like. Um, we talked about how to de-escalate and what de-escalation looks like and what side of the street you're supposed to be on and um, how to scope out individuals that might look like um, they want to disrupt, right? And 
we had very, very intense and yeah. very honest conversations about what that looked like. And for a lot of people, um, a lot of folks were uncomfortable and we unfortunately had to let folks go who did not align themselves um, with our mission. And that's kind of how we created our security team, which we use for everything now. That is extremely interesting. So just to be, so, you know, I've seen uh, marches and demonstrations um, collaborate with police and call police to give them the map ahead of time. Did you all do that? No, not at all. Okay. Why? <laughs> Um, I think for a multitude of reasons. I mean, we had all different types of people who were showing up to this event, right? Um, my biggest concern were folks who were unhoused. Who, who would be showing up, especially um, young black teens who are unhoused would be showing up to these events. Um, and we were really worried that if anything was disrupted um, and they were triggered in any way, um, that police would treat them with the utmost brutality. Um, and so a, a lot of our ideas and our thinking was behind this is we do not wanna perpetuate harm um, and the Portland Police Department has perpetuated harm, right? And they've perpetuated harm to the individuals that were going to be showing up um, to this protest to express their anger. And it would just be contradictory for us to put them in these spaces with folks who have been brutalized, who've been triggered, who've been hurt um, by police. Um, so I think that was kind of like our concept behind that, which is, how do we create less harm? And that was the first thing, which is we cannot have police in our presence, right? Like we can't have them around and it would not be conducive to the environment. I see. Um, and is that something that there was consensus about within the group? Because initially you said there was something like 30 people mm. involved in bringing this event together. Um, was there internal disagreement about this or was it fairly uncontroversial? Um, no, not at all. <laughs> everybody was like, yeah. I think that was like the first thing everybody agreed on. Like, hey guys, no police, right? <laughs> Everybody's like, yep. So there was no like discussion. There was no like deep, like rooted issues around that at all. Um, and that just speaks okay. volumes, right? That speaks volumes that we could all be on a, in one accord about that. It really does, yeah. Yeah, it really does. And so how did it work out during the protest? Were there any events that needed the security team's um, attention? There were a couple incidences and it had nothing to do with people who were actually at the protest, but mostly aggressors, um, folks who had either heard about the protest or either seen the protest, um, who, had come into town and wanted to disrupt um, and the security team did a great job, right? Like all the training that we did, all the de-escalation that we did, it worked, right? They did their job, which is to make sure that the individuals who came out to protest were safe. Um, and we did exactly that. Interesting. So it did work out in our favor. So it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, was it perfect? No, um, there was like 3000 people. So, you know, 
Um, there are other things that we could have done better at, but I think for our first time, I think we did an amazing job at making sure that everybody was safe, making sure that everyone was hydrated, making sure that um, individuals that maybe couldn't um, do the whole eight hours, but were still being able, we could transport them from one location to the other. Um, and I think we did a really good job at that. And obviously there will always be agitators. There will always be folks who do not agree with the mission, who do not agree with what we believe in. Um, even though it's not even a belief, it's really like a human issue at this point. Um, but I think that we really did show, well, what does it look like if we, we wouldn't have police? And this could be something that it looks like. Interesting. Um, so defunding police, as I understand it, was your central, one of your central demands, if not the central demand. Yes. So what does a world without police look like then? Ooh, freedom. <laughs> like, um, at least for me, I think a world without policing as we know it, it already does exist. If you go to places like Cape Elizabeth, you go to places like Falmouth, you you go to very, you, you go to certain um, neighborhoods in Saco, like you literally see, you don't see policing, right? Like they literally live in a, a bubble where policing is not the blunt force, right? And I think that we've seen it, we're, we're seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so I think when people say like, what does it look like? We, we see it in real time when we see affluent white neighborhoods um, with no policing around, right? That's what it looks like. You know, they police each other. They have like neighborhood watches, um, like, you know, like they employ each other. We see what it looks like versus when you come deeper into Portland and the neighborhood that I grew up in, you see places like Kennedy Park, there's literally a police station in the middle of the community right in the middle, the center of the neighborhood, right? You're giving kids the idea yes. that we are yes. inherently yes. more violent than anybody else. We, are, we will inherently create more crime than anybody else. Um, and so I think a world without policing for black folks is stillness, it's freedom. It is, it is finally our chance to govern ourselves. It's finally us taking the autonomy from the state and giving it back to ourselves, right? It's finally giving the resources and the money and the budget for organizations that can actually do the job that we need and can actually create a sustainable community for us. I mean, we saw that with the, with the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. I mean, that was a whole community that did not need the policing. They policed each other. They were accountable to each other without that policing. And when we say defund the police, it's to finally take back that autonomy and to finally put that back into ourselves and put all that energy back into our community to, to find what we've lost and to gain what we've lost. Interesting. So let me ask you to, about a distinction that you kind of alluded to. You talked about how there aren't police in wealthy suburbs like Cape Elizabeth, but there is policing. There are things like neighborhood watch. Um, and, you know, we know that what killed Trayvon Martin was not police, but policing by a self-appointed vigilante cop. 
how do we ensure that, that that doesn't become the new model of policing? Let's say the world that you dream about is realized. What if we breed a bunch of George Zimmermans? That's, I, I think that's a really, really good question. How I personally see it, and hopefully I don't like ramble and hopefully like this makes sense when everybody listens to it. Um, but I think the unique thing about us being able to police ourselves and us being able to make decisions for ourselves is us being able to insulate our own community. Um, there, Trayvon Martin did, there wasn't a community that was there to fall back on. There wasn't a, a group, I mean, for example, I'll give them for, for an example. There was a story about a, a black lady that, and this might've been somewhere in the Midwest a couple years ago. There was a story about a black lady who was being harassed at the bus stop by a white man, right? But she needed to take the bus every day for work, right? So every day this white man would come to the, come to the bus stop and he would harass her constantly. Now, right across the street lived a black family. The, the man that lived in the house saw it a couple times and went out and spoke to the lady one day and asked her what was going on. The lady told him, this is what's been happening. He's always harassing me, following me around. The next day, the lady gets up again for her day at work. 30 black men show up. Okay. Right. Insulate her, surround her, make sure she gets to her destination. And when she comes back from work, they're still at the bus stop. Right. They okay. secure the neighborhood. They make sure that everybody's okay. They go around from house to house to house asking about this man. Has he harassed other people? There was literally an outpouring of the community saying, okay, we need, now we need to protect our own. And what does that look like? Okay. I hope that kind of like made sense. Yes, it made perfect sense. And it leads me to ask another question, which might be my last since we're running quite low on time, but what are the differences between the police and the security team? How we, how we say it, I mean, I will, I'll give you the spiel that we give all, all the security team and we always tell them that we are not, we are not police. We are not here to invoke law and order, right? Like that is not our job to tell individuals what they can and cannot do. We do not have a system to uphold. We, we are not here to uphold white supremacy. We are not hold, up here to uphold anything. Our only and our sole job, right, is safety. That is it. And we are not here to tell an individual or tell multiple individuals what they can and cannot do, right? And, and I think that was the biggest difference, which was we made sure, I mean, we had a lot of individuals who are white who are in our security team. And we made it very, very clear that it is not their, in, their job to interact with any black people. It is not their job to interact with any BIPOC folks. That is the job of the, of the black people that are organizing. We govern ourselves. This is not your job. Your job is not to police us and tell us what we can and cannot do. We, we are not, we don't have the hammer to tell individuals, um, this is what needs to be done. We are not here to like maintain public order, right? We're mm -hmm. not here to enforce any laws um, to prevent anything. Our, our, our sole function is just to make sure you are here to express your rage, however it looks like for you in a safe space. 
And people can interpret that however they would like, right? So however rage looks like for you, our only job is to make sure that you are safe, that you get home safe, that you get to wake up the next morning and still express your rage. Okay, well, that is uh, a lot to chew on and I appreciate it. I think I have time for one more question. Um, which is about David Olcott and Chance Baker. Um, you said that when David Olcott was shot and killed by Portland police, uh, you were in high school, am I right? I was in elementary school, um, but when Chima Martin died, I was in high school. Um, but he was murdered by the Portland Police Department um, he was shot like over 10 times. Mm. Um, and it happened actually down the street from my house. And I like vividly remember after his, they left his body out there for hours. And I remember, wow. um, if this is for, for, for readers who've never been around African people that grieve, but, um, I, I could like vividly remember like the wailing, you know what I mean? Of the African women that like have raised me and that I grew up with. And I, I remember just like hearing it from down the street. And I remember my parents not letting us go down that street because there was so much blood and they didn't even have the decency wow. to clean it up or anything. Um, and I remember walking to school, me and my brother walking to school the next day. And I just remember seeing blood like everywhere on the street and on the sidewalk. And I remember just feeling like confused, but also like super nauseous because even as a child, you know, there's something wrong. And I remember the intense fear that South Sudanese people had um, finally realizing that you are not absolved from blackness because you are African. Mm -hmm. And that was a very harsh reality for a lot of Africans here that you are not absolved from it. Right. Um, yeah. Just because you were not a descendant of Chattisalva, just because you were not black American, just because your lineage didn't start in America does not mean um, we do not get the blunt force of the trauma of what whiteness is. And that was a very that was a day that a lot of think people had to confront. And I, it's still a such a sore and very sensitive topic for a lot of South Sudanese people because there wasn't any closure. Um, yeah, and I just it was it was very brutal, and I, they they had to have like a closed casket because he was shot so many times. Um, but it was very it was very brutal, and I think that was a lot of African people's. I mean, and earlier from your first question, you said like, what's all that like being a Mainer, being an immigrant, all like all those intersections, and that's literally where everything intersects, right? When yeah. death literally at your doorstep, and it's at and it's at the hands of police and it's at the hands of the institution that's keeping us where we are, that's when everything intersects. Well, I um, wish we could go on. I'll ask you if you have any last words. We are out of time, um, but I'm extremely grateful that you made the time and uh, I hope to talk to you more 
offline. Yes. Um, I'm. And I also want to express my gratitude for all the work you do and have been doing. Portland is a dramatically better place to live in because of you and because of Black Power. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, I, I hope I wasn't like rambling and hopefully my uh, answers made sense. Um, but oh, no, you didn't remember. I, I think my last words that I'd have to say is we are the revolution. Like we are the people that we've been waiting for and the blueprint has already been set up for us. And the work is really just starting and it's really just beginning. And I'm finally at a place in my life where I think I'm realizing that this is like the work that I'm supposed to be doing and I'm dedicated to it um, wholeheartedly. And I hope whoever's listening to this and if you're even young or you're in college or you're older and you really wanna get into this work to just be very authentic and to understand that this is really not easy and the work that we do as organizers is reliving our trauma every single day so another Black person doesn't have to go through it. Um, and that we do this with the utmost amount of love and respect for all the people who've done this before us. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for the summer and I'm excited for however long I'm in Maine still for. Um, yeah, I'm just... I'm, I'm filled with gratitude that you guys decided that we should be interviewed. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. Well, thank let, you, me come in, let me come in here to thank you both. That was uh, an incredibly inspiring and stimulating conversation. Lots for people to think about, about what should community-based safety and security actually look like and what does a revolution in the making look like and, and feel like? I, I really echo Michael's sentiments that um, the, the advent of Black Power and the incredible organizing work that you all are doing uh, is changing Portland. And uh, it, feels, it feels exciting, um, it feels challenging. And I'm incredibly grateful that you agreed to um, come on the show today and and talk with us about your visioning work, um, your, your own personal history uh, and your visioning work and giving our listeners a glimpse of where we should be going, where we could be going. So thanks to both of you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you. Hopefully we could do this again with Christiana because um, they're just as brilliant. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much. This was amazing. Thanks, Mariana. That would be great to have a follow-up conversation. I'm going to invite listeners to join us again next week uh, when we're going to be uh, tackling a similar set of questions, but from a slightly different vantage point. Um, once again, Michael Cabetti, who is the policy counsel for ACLU Maine, will be moderating a conversation. But this time the topic is on the possibilities for abolitionist organizing, abolitionist visioning, actually from within the system. Michael's going to be talking with Natasha Irving, who is the district attorney for District 6, and Tina Natto with the Maine Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Uh, so join us next week again on the Freedom and Captivity podcast. I'd like to thank the Portland Media Center who sponsors this podcast, Josh Riddle, who is the sound engineer for the podcast, and Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode.
Thanks, everybody. Thank you.